This episode features discussions and interviews around sensitive topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Domestic violence is probably one of the most despicable crimes because it's committed against someone who loves and trusts the offender. It happens in your home and it often leaves victims controlled, confined and cut off. In this episode, we're looking at how domestic abuse affects male victims. Welcome to the Problem With Men podcast. The Problem With Men podcast. See what the jury and judge thinks. Tell the world, Johnny. Tell them, Johnny Depp. I, Johnny Depp, man, I, I'm a victim too of domestic violence, and yes. I, you know, it's a fair fight. It sees how many people believe or side with you. While opinions on the trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard were divisive, some of the evidence shone a light behind the closed door of an abusive relationship. And I, I watched you, you lie, and then I, I didn't see, punch you, by the I, way. You, I'm sorry that I didn't uh, you, uh, hit you across the face in a proper slap, but I was hitting you. It was not punching you. Babe, you're not punched. Don't tell me what it feels like to be punched. Either. You know, you've been in a lot of fights. You've been around a long time. I know. Yeah. No, I, you fucking have a close You face. didn't get punched. You got hit. I'm sorry I hit you like this, but I did not punch you. I did not fucking deck you. I fucking was hitting you. I don't know what the motion of my actual hand was, but you're fine. I did not hurt you. I did not punch you. I was hitting you. Evidence such as this highlights how abusers try and control the narrative. It also highlighted how men too can be the victim of physical violence in a relationship. Most, if not all relationships, have tensions, disagreements, and arguments. But when does this turn into domestic abuse? Well, the official definition uh, which the government use and, and, and we use is where there is a single or a pattern of abuse uh, ranging from psychological and emotional abuse, economic abuse, sexual abuse, uh, physical abuse and coercive and controlling behaviour between adults, either that they're within a family or that they're also are partners or former partners. And that's the that's the government's official definition. And it's one that we and the whole domestic abuse sector uses. Mark Brooks is the chairman of the Mankind Initiative, a domestic abuse charity that focuses on male victims. But underlying the definition of domestic abuse is for the first time we've got a domestic abuse law, domestic abuse act is the official title, and it was uh, came out last year. And what that's really important in doing is actually putting the definition of domestic abuse in law, because before it wasn't a legally defined term. Um, it was obviously used but it wasn't legally defined, and now and now it is. And so I think that that's a big advantage. In addition to that, the government have recently just published statutory guidance on uh, the delivery of the Domestic Abuse Act, and that obviously will uh, give a lot of teeth 
and understanding to the types of behaviours that make up domestic abuse. So while it's good that the government are tackling domestic abuse, do we know how many men might be victims? So the Office for National Statistics, which is the independent statistical body in the UK, uh, estimates that around three quarters of a million men are victims of domestic abuse every year. And they make up one in three of all victims. And also they state that between one in six and one in seven men will be a victim in their lifetime. So it's a substantial figure. And the key for us is not to get into debates about whether it's slightly more or slightly less, because we think that that's a good estimate. And we want to focus on the policy and also on the delivery of services in the communities for men. Ben Hine is a professor of applied psychology at the University of West London. He teaches and researches topics relating to gender and forensic psychology. A lot of his academic research has been around domestic abuse. So one of the issues within this area is that we're often guided by statistics, which um, is, is absolutely right to an extent. So what I mean by that is that statistics can only get us so far and they should always be presented uh, with critical insight. So, for example, um, some people look to uh, police recording as a reliable uh, measure of the proportion of victims. Now, we from those statistics see that approximately 80% of those who report to police are female and 20% are male. So people say, okay, one in five victims are then fundamentally male. Now, there's no specific issue with using those statistics as long as they're presented with the caveat that men have widely reported that they do not want to engage with the police, uh, you know, when they are talking about domestic violence. And there is a wealth of research that suggests that they don't have great experiences, although this is now, uh, you know, over five years old. So things may have changed. So my point there is that that may represent an underreporting by men to police uh, services and therefore to say, well, fundamentally one in five uh, victims are therefore men from that data um, could could come under question, and I would certainly question it. Same with the Office of National Statistics data um, that says it's about one in three. We always have to ask, okay, how is that data collected? What kind of questions are asked? Um, and what you find is that the more kind of uh, neutral you phrase the questions, the more um, you know, the more widespread and community-based the sampling is. Actually, the closer we get to 50-50 and gender parity of abuse. The more you think about it, the more sense it makes. Why wouldn't women be just as abusive as men? So if you're not evoking these ideas of abuse and, and, uh, and violence, which we might associate with, with one gender over the other because of the stereotypes, when you strip all of that back and you deliver measures that are more neutral and focused on behaviour, then we see parity. And I have always been in the position of being very clear that there is no reason um, to think that one gender should be more abusive than the other in terms of the capability. Everybody is capable of being abusive. But aren't men supposedly just more aggressive and abusive? 
It's less about whether you're a man and you want control or whether you're a woman. It's about what latent or, or uh, life course trauma do you have that has led you to a propensity of violence? Um, and I think it's really important that we start to open up our minds to the idea of female violence, the idea that f- women can be aggressive and violent, because I think colloquially, um, many of us know that, you know, we, 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 we know that women can be perfectly capable of violence. Why wouldn't they be? Um, but it's clouded by these stereotypes around what it means to be a man or a woman and whether women or women on the whole are violent um, that kind of clouds that judgment. So I think we need to make quite a few inroads here on really, really wanting to understand. And that's the thing. We've got to have the motivation as a community to understand why people are abusive and then to try and help them in that, regardless of whether they are male or female um, uh, or, or a particular sexuality or, or so on and so forth. Um, so I think we, we really need to open ourselves up to developing that understanding, um, because at the moment we actually have an exceptionally narrow view of domestic violence and abuse, why it occurs and what we should do about it, which is focused almost exclusively on the experiences of cisgendered and heterosexual women, which are completely valid, deserve our attention, but not our complete attention. As a society, we do seem to have an issue with seeing women as capable of violence. But why is this? Mark Brooks again. It's been a running theme for the last 15 years, which I've been involved in this field, where organisations and campaigners who just cannot accept or wish to minimise to the smallest margin possible, they cannot accept that women commit domestic abuse against men. So every year or so, you'll suddenly see organisations and campaigners wheedling out information saying, well, when it comes to male victims... Uh, majority of, of men committing domestic abuse against other men, uh, which is just completely untrue. And, you know, those who put out that um, type of meme or type of um, trope really are doing it because they cannot accept that women commit domestic abuse against men. Um, it's very disingenuous. And I've been very public about that. I don't. The, their motivations are quite clear because they take an ideological view of domestic abuse, which makes it, which is primarily female uh, victim, male perpetrator. And therefore it makes it difficult for them when they're looking at their ideology to accept that um, men are victims at the hands of women. But it maybe goes deeper than that. Ben Hine. Well, our response and our understanding of of domestic abuse or domestic violence and abuse or otherwise known as intimate partner violence has grown out of uh, much needed um, and uh, very effective uh, feminist uh, approaches to violence that have, uh, you know, rightly sought to centre, understand uh, and improve the experiences of women who've experienced violence um, from their male partners. Um, and those approaches, as, as I've said, were, were really uh, needed. Um, they've great, raised great awareness. They have uh, led to the development of various services and support in the community. Um, 
However, what has occurred as a result of that is that the narrative around domestic violence, um, particularly from a feminist perspective, which frames abuse as kind of unilaterally perpetrated by men towards women, um, has ended up excluding uh, many other types of survivor from the narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, this has uh, been in effect at multiple different levels, right from policy and provision and the kind of violence against women and girls strategy, the Istanbul Convention at the top, all the way down to, you know, service provision and also survivors interpretation of the behaviour that has been perpetrated towards them. So, it, it, you know, our advocacy and our awareness around domestic violence has grown um, from a completely valid place. However, that narrative has uh, yeah, led to the kind of um, invisibilization of certain survivor groups. So clearly, campaigners on behalf of female victims of domestic abuse have been successful in raising awareness of the issue. They've influenced policy and secured support for victims. But their success might have come somewhat at the cost of male victims. Mark Brooks. Well, well, the key thing is, is that and when it comes to abuse, first of all, it's about the power and control of one individual over the other. So that that's a key driver. Um, and so so that's important to have that at the front of your mind. But also, it's not always about physical violence. I mean, and this this is why this is why the 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 definition of domestic abuse is really important, because obviously physical violence is captured within that definition. But issues around coercive control, economic abuse, psychological and emotional abuse, and also the use of children um, and other aspects. Uh, of of domestic abuse are really captured in this and therefore uh, for many men when they're growing up they're they're told um, obviously that it's not really likely that they're going to be a victim of domestic abuse and also when it comes to when they are a victim they often don't understand they are and also if they do understand it, they feel a real sense of shame and embarrassment. They feel less of a man. They undermine It undermines their sense of what it means to be a man, that they're not strong, they're not individual, they're not a provider or a protector. And also, um, one, of the, one of the other issues is around physical size difference because for men, generally speaking, of course, you know, you, we, you, you're six foot two, um, when we get called as to our helpline like this, the six foot two, uh, the woman in their life who's carrying out the abuse is five foot six, um, for example, and it makes that far more difficult for them to actually get their head around the fact that they could be a victim. The other point on this is that it's really important uh, for organisations and the public, because we all have a duty to look after each other, to, to help men put the jigsaw together or put the equation together. So what we find is that men recognise the abusive behaviours and they obviously recognise that, uh, that they're wrong. So they get the first part of the equation, you know, the two, and then they've got the other part of the equation that these behaviours are wrong, so the other part of the two. 
but they then don't finish the equation and think, right, that's domestic abuse. So what we need to do is help men put the rest of that equation together because domestic abuse is quite a technical term. Uh, it's not one that men are brought up or socialised to think could actually happen to them. So therefore, when it does happen to them, they have trouble actually understanding it and also processing it, which can lead to this enhanced sense of shame fear and embarrassment so i i moved overseas for for work post university there was a a, a bar that a lot of the sort of expat community would go to um and she um was there with a friend and we got talking and it kind of it kind of went from there really so there was a kind of period of almost you know kind of love bombing it's very intense very positive very you know encouraging very supportive um very enthusiastic about you know going and doing things together and being out and about and 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 as I say that that coupled with being in a foreign country and that sense of novelty and excitement it was quite an intoxicating kind of mix I guess. James who asked that we change his name for this podcast is someone who has experienced domestic abuse firsthand. He met his ex-wife while traveling overseas. It, it it's very difficult. I mean, because you, you know, when you start talking to people about your experiences, one of the common questions I think is, yeah, is, is at what point did you realise it was wasn't right? And it's really, really hard, even with, as I say, the benefit of hindsight, to go back and pick a moment where, you know, as I say, those red flags, those alarm bells started to ring. Um, and I think that's because everything is so incremental. Um, and you're also in those early stages so clouded by that kind of, as I say, that newness, that excitement, that positivity and, and almost naivety of, 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 of youth, I guess, relative youth. Um, there were, there was very clearly a temper there. There was very, there were very, um, rapid changes of, of, of mood, um, and some quite, extreme behavior but i think you know when you're trying to make a relationship work you, you're very forgiving of of things like that unfortunately the relationship turned abusive quite early on a common theme throughout really was that i was all and i, and I don't think i'm alone in this but i would always there would always be an excuse or, 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 or a reason, I guess, for, for the behavior. And that, you know, and we're not talking necessarily just in terms of, you know, a specific incident, but in terms of patterns of behavior, you know. So when we lived um, overseas, it was around this sense that there is a kind of passionate, outspoken, uh, strong-minded female that, that the society wasn't accommodating of her and that, you know, that created a pressure on her to behave in a certain way that didn't sit comfortably. And therefore, when we moved back to the UK, that would be less of an issue. But when we moved back to the UK, you know, we, we initially had to move quite a long way away from where my family and friends were because of, you know, the need to, to, for, to find, well, to find work at, essentially after a few years overseas. Um, so then it was about the fact that, you know, the cut off from from that network of, of support family and friends and then we moved to be closer to them and it was continuing and then it was about well um perhaps not having an independent friendship network but then that be, you know but then that was no longer an issue and the behavior was still carrying on you know and then it was about you know not uh, perhaps having 
having found work and then lo and behold find work but the behavior continues james's partner exploited and aggravated any insecurities he had i've often thought about why perhaps i allowed myself to be subject to those behaviors and i think when you've when as i say you've been presented with a, a, a compelling feasible narrative around why that person's behaving that way but when it's also then sort of um reinforced by a, a, a kind of a, a joint narrative effectively that that you somehow deserve that behavior if that makes sense um so i've often reflected on the as i say on why why i i allowed the, the behaviors to go on and why i allowed myself to be subject to what i was subject to and i think it's because it in a sense it validated feelings that i had about myself i had fairly low self-worth and, and when somebody's telling you that yes actually you're not <laughs> you know you aren't worth much um and you are all the sort of negative things that maybe you've thought about yourself anyway you know again it just it just reinforces a narrative that perhaps you've told yourself over a, a, a period so that you therefore you've got these kind of two really as i say quite compelling narratives one yeah there are reasons for this behavior but two anything that's questionable or you know perhaps that you know i don't actually deserve any better and and that becomes quite a toxic mix i think and you you start to accept and tolerate things that 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 very obviously aren't aren't appropriate because parts of the abuse were quite subtle it affected james's ability to understand what was happening to him you know that there were periods when we we're living overseas where and it kind of it, where i would notice that that things would get worse at night and and that would be manifested in in kind of sleep deprivation i wouldn't wouldn't allow me to get into bed or should take away all of my bed covers and pillow and deny me any kind of opportunity to sleep because when that when a temper and behavior was escalating like that one of my sort of strategies for dealing with it was to take myself off to bed to try and almost seek refuge in in sleep i guess um and she would not want that she would want to provoke an argument or want to prolong you know yeah almost the sense that there was there was a desire there to 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 as i say to provoke an argument to have some kind of uh, fight which it, it, it's it's just not in my temperament or nature i just don't believe that that's a healthy way to behave and i would rather in that instance as i say take myself off to bed um but but you you're your sort of benchmark, your your gauge for what's acceptable and, and normal, it, it becomes so completely skewed. As the relationship progressed, the abuse got worse. Too long after we got back to the UK, she fell pregnant with our um, our first child, um, and certainly the behaviours as in the early months and years of my daughter's life were very extreme and challenging. To the degree that she, you know, at one point she was diagnosed with postnatal depression, and it was a helpful label because, although I knew that there, that, you know, these were not behaviours that were unique to the to that period, um, having a kind of medical 
um, diagnosis that that removed any sense of of personal agency from it was helpful in a way because it you know it gave it a label and it gave us something to I guess work on and get help around um, but um, but some of the worst incidents happened during my yeah I would say my daughter's sort of first year um, the behaviour became much more extreme much more violent it was happening in front of my, my, my daughter um, to the extent you know one occasion I was being pushed and shoved around our apartment and, and my daughter was clinging to my leg and I was almost pushed onto her um, so it yeah I would say it it got it got progressively worse from there um, and I think but I think the difficulty then is as as is as is often the case with relationships like that <clears throat> you, you you're effectively adding layers and layers to the relationship you know first house children financial responsibilities you know it it becomes harder and harder to to to, to see it an exit from that and you become more and more I guess determined to try and make it work for the fam the family you know um, the narrative becomes about that need for for children to have a, a, a healthy stable two parent family environment in which to grow up um, that's what I'd had and that's what I certainly wanted for my children while James was clearly unhappy with his partner's behaviour they always seem to find some way of justifying it. It's clearly not helped when professionals, including the ones that diagnose his partner with postnatal depression, add validity to those excuses. Mark Brooks. But the issue is, is around this, what I call professional curiosity. And that if you've got a man who's anxious, who's depressed, who might have bruises in the GP surgery, does the GP think, or I wonder if this man's a, a victim of domestic abuse. I might want to explore what's going on at home. Um, same in terms of uh, the police. Um, when they're presented with a man, um, they're not always thinking, "Or oh, could this be? Uh, could this be domestic abuse?" You know, find an injured man, and they, they you know, their, their reaction will be, "Well, it's probably another man that's done it in a, in a fight." So I think um, there still is a long way to go when it comes to dealing with um, professional curiosity. And part of it is um, society's view that men can bear more risk and harm than women. And certainly there's been tests, including with local magistrates, where presented with the same scenarios, uh, local magistrates felt that a man could bear more risk and harm than a woman in the same situation. So these are quite in-depth social type issues that occur right across the whole field of men and boys' well-being from suicide through to domestic abuse and sexual abuse and uh, all different sorts of areas. Um, but also we can certainly see that and how it comes out with response to how other people view male victims. This lack of professional curiosity is just one barrier male victims have to overcome to get help and support. Ben Heim. 
whenever I talk about uh, barriers to, to engagement in support, I tend to talk about it in, in an intersectional way and in a way that allows us to kind of layer up those barriers, um, not only based on your kind of demographic, but also where those barriers exist. So just briefly, if you think about any survivor of domestic violence, they will have a barrier to reporting their abuse because there is stigma around domestic violence. Now, if you then say that that person is a man, they will probably experience additional barriers than, for example, a cisgendered heterosexual woman because they will have barriers relating to masculine norms, um, you know, potential embarrassment, shame, um, lack of awareness of their own uh, experiences and, and from services. And then if you were then to introduce uh, other layers of vulnerability in that sense and barriers. So if that if that was a transgender man or, or, or a GBT man, um, they would have additional barriers associated with homophobia or biphobia or transphobia. Um, and, and the kind of societal, um, you know, uh, rejection of anything that falls out of a kind of heteronormative relationship. So there are multiple barriers in terms of, you know, the identity of the person seeking support. And then in terms of where those barriers exist, it starts with the survivor themselves. You know, a lot of these stereotypes and barriers are internalized. So it, it, a lot of the time, the first step is actually recognizing that what you're experiencing is abuse because our perceptions of gender and our perceptions of stereotypes and roles around gender will affect how we evaluate things. And just to give one example, I did a study once with a student who uh, gave the exact same scenario to two groups of people. One was a man who was texting his girlfriend on a night out, constantly asking where she was, being very controlling which the students identified as controlling behavior whereas when we switched those sexes around and we had a woman doing that to a man um uh, it was just seen as kind of being over the under the thumb a bit tongue-in-cheek so our actual perceptions of behavior can change um based on our knowledge of stereotypes and men and women and how they should act so a lot of the barriers are internal and that's what i found from some of my research looking at uh, when men call helplines, for example, a lot of the support they need is actually just recognition and talking through whether what they are experiencing constitutes abuse. And then beyond that, in terms of societal, we could have judgments from friends and family that are potentially negative based on violation of norms and stereotypes. There is a chronic lack of availability and then successful service provision for men. So services are often um, at fault there as well. And also when we look at justice systems, so for example, interaction with police, um, there is a body of research also demonstrating that male victims of IPV do not have a good time with the police on the whole either. So um, that essentially adds up to a picture where uh, men face, you know, significant barriers. And then when we think about that intersectionality, if it was a GBT man who was also from an ethnic minority, those layers of barriers just just end up compounding. And of course, it's harder to see yourself as a victim when male victims are often hidden. It's an issue of representation. If you don't see yourself represented as part of a phenomenon, then then you are going to fundamentally question whether you are indeed experiencing that phenomenon. So um, <clears throat> the other example that you'll often come across is if you go into a GP surgery or, or even a nightclub toilet, for example, you might see posters, uh, you know, that are targeting survivors of, of domestic violence saying, 
you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You can leave. Here is the support for that. Um, and almost always those are, yes, targeted at women. So um, it creates this overall narrative that this phenomenon, these behaviours, this experience is exclusive to women. And that will then reinforce that aware, the lack of awareness and the barriers that men feel. This issue of representation doesn't only affect victims. It also influences police officers, GPs and other professionals who, like Mark pointed out, are less likely to spot when a man is being abused. This is exactly the situation James found himself in. You know, if I, my daughter would be just, I think, just over a year old, um, where, and it was the occasion I talked about where I was almost pushed onto it, where um, she went on to, to to physically attack me, and I, you know, and, and that had built up over a period of weeks. And my, by that point, my arms were were covered in a number of sort of bruises and scratches and welts, and um, and and that on that day she had a really severe escalation of, of, of temper and, and anger and as I say pushed and shoved me around screamed and shouted at me eventually threw me physically forced me out of our apartment locked the door and threatened to return overseas with our daughter and um, and on that occasion I, I did ring the GP f- to get some help and again from that perspective of look this 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 is happening to me but i want us to i want to try and find a way of, of dealing with it together and i was able to persuade her to come to the to the doctors with me so we we went to the doctors that afternoon it was a saturday afternoon went with my daughter as well and you know i talked so the referral had been very much around you know i'm experiencing violent behavior i'm being assaulted you know i need some help so that was that would that was very clearly the direction of the referral we got to the gp we talked about the fact that you know i had been attacked i had bruises and marks on my arms um and that but you know that i wanted wanted us to try and find some some support um and the gp's position was that that essentially he said that there are sometimes people have grown up in cultural circumstances or family circumstances in which, you know, there is violence and there is, there's, you know, aggressive behavior and that, that, you know, conditions people to, to perhaps model those behaviors later in life and that there are cultural factors and that some relationships are therefore just a bit, you know, there's a bit more push and pull, shall we say, in the relationship. They're a bit more physical. Um, but that essentially, you know, I should just get on with it. You know? And of course, it's not just professionals. One aspect of abuse is how the perpetrator will often isolate the victim from their support networks. Mark Brooks. And many men, when they talk to us, uh, describe the fact that they feel like they're the, the frog in the slowly boiling um, saucepan. Or others describe it as they're going through this circle of you know, loving relationship, there's some sort of tension, they become isolated from friends and family, they work out what's going on, they try to escape, and then there's uh, a ramping up of the uh, abuse that they that they suffer from. Uh, often that's when physical violence comes in as a way of the perpetrator to try and, to try and re- 
reassert her control. But the key thing is for all victims is that there's no one single type of abuse that they will be suffering from. They will be suffering from a whole cocktail of different types of abuse. But also um, you get the, the situation and where the, the other key barrier, and there's four key barriers that men face, but as well as what I call masculinity, and there's nothing negative about masculinity, but how men are socialised, how men are, it's either in their DNA or how they're socialised, um, into thinking in this provider protector role, hence why they feel this enhanced sense of shame. But one of the other barriers that male victims face is around how society believes how men should feel, act, do and think. And when it comes to domestic abuse, the public generally and also many professionals in public services, not all, but many, don't have the same level of spidey sense that they have potentially for a female victim. So if they've, if there's a, a, um, a brother or a son that's got a new girlfriend or partner, for example, and, you know, they, they're less in contact, they don't start necessarily to think, is that, is my son or my brother in, a, in a, an abusive relationship or a bad relationship? And as that contact becomes denuded and gets less and less, they their spidey sense isn't going off in the same way it probably would for a female victim. The core issue is how society understands domestic abuse. Yeah, as a society, um, it is, domestic abuse is still recognised as a woman's issue. But that's not really in keeping with how society is. And in fact, when you say it's a woman's issue, it's only seen as a heterosexual woman's issue because women in same-sex relationships are completely um, marginalised and underrepresented in the narrative around domestic abuse too. And the, the, the concern we have is that it's really out of keeping with how this century, in, and in particular this decade, is trying to make great strides when it comes to recognising diversity, inclusion and equality, and a, a recognition that we live in a 360-degree world now, which is right and proper. But for some reason, domestic abuse is decades behind that. And partly that's because there's big lobby groups, interest groups um, and others who want to define domestic abuse as an ideological crime, that it's part of women's place in the world, part of the patriarchy, etc. And by doing so, um, it means that there's an additional barrier to actually recognising the full range and di diversity of all victims. Many try and set up this false competition between men and women, so um, which I, we don't think should exist, and certainly I don't think should exist, um, and doesn't exist in any other sector or many other sectors, but it does in domestic abuse. For, for example, many view domestic abuse as a gendered crime, which is an ideological position and not born by fact, because to call something a gendered crime 
means that it only happens to one gender as a victim and a, another gender as a perpetrator. But also, when we've challenged this, um, government and others have said, well, it's because there's more female victims than male victims. So we've then said, well, there's far more men who are sleeping uh, rough on our streets than women. Around um, 85% of people who sleep rough on our streets are, are men. So do we now say that rough sleeping is a gendered homeless problem? The same with suicide. Three quarters of people who take their own life are men. So now do we say suicide is a gendered mental health problem? No, we don't. And we shouldn't do. But when it comes to domestic abuse, it is OK to actually say that because 66 percent of victims are women, then that must be a gendered crime. Ben Heim. One of the, the key areas where this um, is an issue currently and, and we're in kind of dialogue around this with, with the Home Office is around where men are positioned within the various strategies. And at the moment, we do have the relatively absurd position where men are classified as victims of violence against women and girls because they exist within the Vogue strategy. There is no separate strategy for men. Now, that is fundamentally illogical and also will serve as a fundamental kind of undermining of the male experience because they will start from a position fundamentally where you know, they belong to a strategy that's designed for women and girls. Mark Brooks. Now, I know many people won't won't believe me when it comes to the fact that male victims of domestic abuse are officially defined and classed by the government as being victims of violence against women and girls. So if you are a male victim of domestic abuse with two daughters... Um, if you are a, a male victim of sexual violence, if you're a, a, a gay man fleeing a forced marriage, if you're a boy who's being sexually, uh, who's being groomed online, um, you are officially classed by the government as being a victim of violence against women and girls. There is wholesale misgendering of male victims of all of those types of crimes. Um, and it's just completely Orwellian and unacceptable. I mean, from a factual point of view, that a male victim of, a, of domestic abuse cannot be a victim of violence against a woman. And the reason is because men aren't women. But according to the government in this field, uh, a male victim is a woman. In addition, that type of narrative... Um, means it's harder for men to see themselves as being victims of domestic abuse when the narrative is all around women and girls. But also it means that public services continue just to focus on heterosexual female victims because they're always being told we've got to uh, deal with and address violence against women and girls, which of course is really, really important. But they're lumping all domestic abuse services under that umbrella. And what we're seeing is that local authorities and the police and others are forgetting that the term violence against uh, women and girls actually includes men and boys too. I mean, it's a ridiculous situation. I mean, you go to any member of the public and say, um, 
that male victim of domestic abuse is 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 classed as the government by the government as being a victim of violence against women and girls and they just look at you incredulously because it is incredulous um and lots of organizations um are trying to campaign uh for the government to stop that not to end the violence against women and girls strategy or any focus on violence against women and girls but also to treat men in their own right so they're victims of intimate violence against men and boys and to have our own strategy it does feel pretty degrading and dismissive to hear that male victims are only valued enough to be tacked onto a strategy to help women and girls benheim the issue is that that document fundamentally will never be in a position to truly help men who are survivors of domestic violence and abuse. And the reason for that is because that is not its purpose. Its purpose is to help and put a framework around how we assist women who are victims of violence against uh, women and girls, as is named in the strategy. What we would need is a parallel strategy. And it's no good just providing position statements that are within that framework, because you have to think about how fundamentally invalidating it is to come forward as a male survivor. And this this is in regard to any uh, any behaviour covered by Vorg. Um, so, for example, uh, when there was the big revelation and the scandal around uh, boys being abused in sport, every single one of those boys was categorised as a victim of violence against women and girls, which, again, is illogical. Um, so we need to come to a position where we recognise what documents are uh, are there, what they are intending to do, what their purpose is and who they serve. And I, I've never uh, been an advocate of, of getting rid of Vorg. I think it's an incredibly useful document. Um, but we're trying to uh, fit a square peg in a round hole. And because of the predominance of Vorg and the lack of a parallel strategy, it bleeds over into all of these policy decisions, service provision decisions, funding decisions, which fundamentally frames intimate partner violence and domestic violence in an incorrect way. And I think it's also really important now to talk about the Vorg strategy in relation to the uh, approach it comes from as well, because, again, it has been fueled and it has been born out of feminist perspectives around where IPV comes from. Now, we are at a position within the academic research and the academic literature which strongly challenges patriarchal explanations of violence within relationships um, as, as, a, as an all-encompassing uh, and all-explanatory uh, theory. And of course, it's not just the lack of a strategy aimed at preventing violence against men and boys, but also the whole way society sees men and masculinity. When, when we think about the kind of societal response, we have to think about the society that we live in. It's a he heavily gendered society. We are having more and more critical conversations around gender identity um, as we are living kind of firmly in the age of, of wokeness and talking about these things, which is a good thing, in my opinion. Um, however, we are still we're still in a society where these stereotypes exist. They are pervasive. They're representative within our media. And I always show a clip from the TV series Friends, because there is an episode of that show where um, Joey had, who, you know, as watchers of the show will know, he's quite a big, tough, very stereotypically masculine guy. He has a very short, very small, very petite girlfriend who punches him and kind of 
in a, in a, what she perceives as a jolly way, and it actually ends up hurting him. Hey everyone, this is Katie. Hi, Hello, hi. Katie. So you ready to go? Yeah, I just gotta run to the bathroom. Oh, sure, right back there. Hey, where are we going to lunch? Well, I was thinking maybe Chinese food. Oh, I love Chinese! How'd you know I love Chinese? <laughs> she is so cute. You could fit her right in her little pocket. I don't know. I mean, I like her a lot, and she's really nice, but... But what? keeps punching me. <laughs> In the cute little sweet way she just did? Hey, it's a lot harder than it looks, okay? She's, she's hurting me. Ross, I know what you need. You need a bodyguard. Hey, Ross, what is Ben doing after preschool? <laughs> okay, listen, come on. Joey is having a problem. It's a little girl who's beating him up. Oh, Joey, come here, look. Honey, I know, this must be really, really difficult for you. And oh, I, I'm sorry, am I hurting you? <laughs> Until one of them gets punched by the same woman and realises, oh, okay, it does hurt. So, yes, the barriers exist for the men themselves, but also, yes, it is. Lo it takes longer time, um, if ever, for friends, family, co-workers, neighbours to recognise these behaviours when they are occurring towards men. And even if they observe them, they may interpret them differently because they may just think that it's a bit of fun or that it's something that men should expect or that they'll be able to deal with it rather than the reaction that they would potentially give a woman who was receiving the same behaviours where they would say, OK, we need to sort this out immediately. If you're enjoying this podcast, support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favourite podcast app. The Problem With Men podcast. One of the common questions received by male victims of domestic abuse is why don't you just fight back? But this flies in the face of a lifetime of being taught that under no circumstances should a man hit a woman. Here's James again. No, I, it just never occurred, and I have had I have had friends ask, you know, or 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 people say, well, you know, I, I just wouldn't have tolerated it. I would have hit back. It's just not in my character. I'm ju I just don't. It, I I just don't agree with violence. I don't, you know, I I, you know, I grew up in a very stable, loving family environment. I had good friendships, uh, you know, amazing friends who, who, who've, who've stuck by me through, you know, and over the past few years have been absolutely incredible. I, I, I um, yeah, I just don't, I absolutely abhor, abhor physical violence. I think, you know, it, it speaks of a loss of control and I don't, I, it, for me, that just wasn't a, wasn't an option. I don't, you know. I would be as bad if you respond like that. Um, I would rather have just do what I did effectively, which was just to take the punches and the kicks and the hits and the bites and the scratches. Um, it, I, yeah, I would rather do that than, than become, become myself a, 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 a violent person, you know, even if that's a response. To, to being attacked I just I, I just yeah I'm not a physical person in that way 
even when things got really bad in James's relationship, he struggled to see himself as a victim. There was always a sense in which I'm an adult. I got into this relationship. Um, what is what happens to me physically, or or, or you know, in terms of what psychologically, you know, not that necessarily I deserve it, but that I have, you know, I'm a consenting adult effectively. Where it became unacceptable was where it was putting my my daughter and latterly our children at risk. And that was very clearly the case when she was barricaded. You know, my daughter was barricaded in an apartment with somebody who was, was screaming, throwing things, shouting, and not in control of their temper at all. That's not a safe environment for a child. So that, that I think, was the driver behind, okay, I need to do something about this now, which was approach the GP. Um as I say, that unfortunately, the way that played out was that it just, it didn't give me any sense that, that there was a way out. But fundamentally, you have that view that, you know, I, I have not brought this on myself, but, you know, I've made choices that have brought us to this place, you know, but the children have no agency, you know, they don't choose to be born into a situation where that's going on. They don't ever it, nobody deserves it but they but they are you know particularly innocent in 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 that setting and yeah and i think that's when you if there was ever a point at which it became clear that it was completely unacceptable it was it was through that lens of what it was doing to the children well the reason he was trying to get help was for the benefit of his children he found it quite difficult to find the support he needed. Well, I know that following separation, my mum admitted to me that she'd been carrying the phone number from a domestic abuse helpline in her in her purse for some months by that point. So I think the reality had started to, to, to dawn elsewhere, um, even if I wouldn't necessarily have classed it as that. If you look at the pattern of my experience, experiences you know you go to the gp for help you're told you know this is just life you know you need to just deal with it um say so reach out to 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 helplines for help but you can't access that support because it's not there 24 7 in the way that, that that it perhaps is um for other people um i think there is a sense in which that message is subtly or not so subtly reinforced that yeah you are uh, that it's that it, this isn't something that necessarily happens to men. Um, I think there's a an underlying fear that you won't be believed. I think is definitely there because you know it, it, even looking at it in really sort of blunt physical terms you know you're bigger you know how how would that how would that work <laughs> you know which is much smaller how how, how you know there's, there, there are those kind of stereotypes that play into it um i'm always I, I always think we have to be very very careful about about a, a kind of over over gendered and um approach t- 
to this because I think it can it can detract attention from the fact that fundamentally, you know, gender doesn't necessarily matter in the experience of a of a victim. Victims experience similar behaviours. They experience, um, you know, the same fear and hurt and, and and upset when these things happen to them. You know, I think it, I think it can cause us to lose focus on on children. And where they are, where they stand in these situations. Mark Brooks is the chairman of the Mankind Initiative that operates a helpline for male victims. Our helpline is funded, um, and our website is funded um, through public donations. So we we receive money from the public, uh, sometimes organisations, uh, fund runs, sponsorships, or just plain donations uh, that go towards uh, keeping our helpline going. If somebody wanted to donate to us, if you go onto our website, mankind.org.uk, and there's a donate section there, and um, there's a number of ways that the public can make donations to us, obviously gift-aided as well, um, or there's lots of ideas about how to do some fundraising, you know, sponsorships, you know, take part in marathons, etc. and lots and lots of people do that all the time. Being funded by the public gives us a real sense of responsibility and also um, a sense of pride because it shows how much the public care about the work that we do and care about male victims. While the helpline is a great initial resource, there's still a lack of practical help for male victims, though hopefully this is improving. When when it comes to emergency shelters and the kind of official phrases, kind of refuge or safe houses, I mean, there there isn't parity, but you wouldn't expect there to be, but given there's more female victims. But there's not kind of equity. There's not a, uh, certainly not a proportion, an equal proportion with respect to the numbers of victims. And certainly when it comes to refuge and safe houses, which are dedicated domestic abuse um, places for men and also um, for women as well, Um, there is a real issue. So across the UK, there's only around 250 places which are available for men. Um, Most of those are available for women too. Um, And that creates a real problem for men in terms of where and how they can escape from domestic abuse and what type of support that they will be able to get and there's a real problem in the east of England the southeast of England and certainly in London with respect to that but the government have brought in under the new domestic abuse act a lot more measures now and expectations that local councils who are responsible for this will be providing better support for male victims when it comes to somewhere that's physically safe for them to escape to, including with children, and where they will actually get domestic abuse support um, where, the, where they live or in other places where they need to escape to. So things aren't great in that area, but we're hoping over the next couple of years um, councils will get their act together and provide far more support. We do think that councils regularly are breaching the Equality Act in that they're providing support in terms of safe accommodation 
really good support for women, which of course we wouldn't. And no one wants to see any of that go. We want more of it. But they're not providing the same level um, of support in that type of area for male victims. And that is something that urgently needs addressing. But James, things eventually came to a head. I mean, it was quite a long, drawn-out um, set of events. But in in a nutshell, it began early evening with a with a with an eruption of temper and and with my wife throwing things at me um, and destroying part of our kitchen in the process and um, behaving. Um, very very drunk uh, alcohol was a, 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 a particularly a factor towards the end in, in, in the behaviours um, my daughter was woken by some of the violence and went to seek help at a neighbour um, there was it, it escalated over the course of that evening um, af- so af- after my daughter had got help um there was a, a suggestion from my neighbors that you know of 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 bringing in possible police support and i said i didn't want to do that oh i i didn't want to i was frightened of what that could do to the family my view is that i wanted to um to try and calm things you know between us and, and 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 to manage the situation myself because I'd been there before and whilst it was extreme, it wasn't necessarily that much more extreme than than we'd had on previous occasions. Um, but the violence continued into the throughout the evening and and then night. Um, was bitten and punched in the head and. A, across the torso scratched um, kicked um, and suffered you know a, 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 over the course of a couple of hours a sort of torrent of, of verbal abuse threats to kill me threats to take the children away threats to harm herself with a kitchen knife and to then call the police and tell them that I'd done it to her um just really, ex- really, really extreme um, behaviour to the point um, that a couple of hours in, the police arrived at the house. Um, I don't know the circumstances behind them being called. I think possibly having... I, I, I don't know whether neighbours having initially, as I say, offered that police support or just uh, taken matters into their own hands. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but police arrived at the house. Um, I exited the house immediately and they and officers went in to, to speak to my wife and, and a couple of officers remained outside the car, uh, outside the house with me to talk to me about what had happened. Now, I think it's a mark of, of what we've talked about in terms of what 
perceptions you have as a male victim about the fact that this isn't abuse, this isn't happening to you, what are people going to think? My, you know, my initial reaction was they're going to make an assumption that me being considerably taller than than her, that you know, I, that I, you know, at best this is bi-directional, at worst that you know somehow I've instigated something. And one of the first questions the police officer asked me was, "Do you want do you want her taken in?" And I said, "I, I, well, I said I don't. Sorry, I don't understand. I don't. I, I don't. I, I don't know what I want. I, it's that that was so completely out of left field as far as I was concerned. I didn't know how to respond. But it in the end that wasn't a decision that that sat with me anyway. One of the officers who'd gone into the house came out and said that she was in such a state that. Uh, my wife was would would be arrested and taken to the station with immediate effect because she was, I, I think, violent and and aggressive with them as well. Um, and when I said to the officers, I said I I I I I didn't think that you would that you would that you would understand what had gone on. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, we're not stupid. We attend enough of these things to see. And he said, and, and for any and you know for seconds, just look at the state of you. Absolutely covered in in bite marks, scratches, bruises. He said, "It's fairly obvious what's gone on here tonight." Um, and he said, "You need to, you need to, you need to get out of this relationship. You need to." He said, "You know, it's not our. We can't force you to, but we've been we've attended enough of these that if you stay in this relationship and you continue to try and make things worse, then the likelihood is that we will be back here and the, and the possibility is that you won't be as lucky next time. Um, that, you know... Um, and I think... Yeah, yeah, I think... I think... When I look back on that evening, I think... Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the, the circumstances in which they came and, and, and made that decision almost for me precipitated me being able to 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 to, to make that cut. Um, but yeah, but there was a point earlier in the evening where she'd been throwing various objects at me, um, and she picked up a a, a a drinking glass. She was only stood couple of meters away from me and I had my back against a, a, a sort of patio door and um, and she was hefting this this drinking glass in her hand and it was a fairly heavy bottomed glass and it was at that moment when I realized that she was seriously considering whether to throw that at me as well and uh, you make that instant calculation of you know how close you are and what that glass what that could do to you I think that was a that perhaps you know you talk about those moments of realization that that you know that this isn't this isn't okay and that that was the point at which I genuinely thought yeah these 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 threats about I'm going to kill you or you know I wish you dead aren't just idle you know threats they've 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 taken on a new significance now and, and genuinely my life is at risk um, and I think that that was perhaps the first kind of I guess point at which my own safety became a you know 
a, a guiding principle, I guess. The positive interaction with the police that night allowed James to see his situation in a new light. Well, I, I just, she was, she was, um, as I say, taken away um, by the police, and I, um, I just made the decision that that was it. You know, that enough was enough. I couldn't expose the children to that level of danger any longer. It wasn't. It was beyond. You know, it it was beyond safe at that point. It, it, I couldn't. I could no longer see that that sense of, of of optimism that had buoyed me through the years up to that point. That you know, with the right help, we could make this better. We could make. We could help her. We could overcome whatever mental health issues or what have you were, were driving this behaviour. Um, I just realised that that it, it wasn't going to get better, um, and I absolutely, as I say, couldn't expose the children to that any longer. So I, I it just made very clear that 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 was it. I wasn't that that the relationship, as far as I was concerned, was over. Um, and I started then just I guess that long road of of recovery um, and trying to suddenly um, rebuild a life um, with two two small children and um, yeah and everything everything that came with that um, but it was yeah I it, there was a very almost a physical sense in which at that point the severity of the the assault was such that it was almost I could literally feel a cord within me being cut, you know, that, that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that any longer. It's clear we still need to do a lot more to help all victims of domestic abuse, but we should also be looking at why people become perpetrators. Ben Hine. We have a long way to go in terms of how we uh, conceptualise and how we seek to understand uh, uh, violent behaviour um, on the part of both men and women. Um, you know, each has their own issue. So with women, the issue is that we're just ignoring their existence. Um, and that is in parallel to us ignoring uh, male victims. And actually, we are making inroads. We are great gaining awareness of male victims. But one of the key things that comes back against that is, oh, well, they're just being abused by other men which is nonsense because all of the statistics that are available demonstrate that when men do report being abused, it is largely at the hands of women. Um, and then the next argument is, well, women are just acting in self-defense. So I think we, we really need to open up our minds to this idea that women can and are, can be and are violent and aggressive and that that is likely rooted in trauma. Now, on the converse side of that, we also need to be having the same conversations about men. We have readily accepted that men can be violent and abusive, but we never fully ask why or want to understand why. We cast them as just horrible people. Um, we say things like that's just what men are like. Um, you know, we, we use these patriarchal models which suggest that they just want power and control and that's all they're after. Actually, when you look at the data that is available, and part of the problem is there isn't enough available, but when you actually look at the data, and I've just completed a project on this, 
you can see that the men engaging with perpetrator programs have a huge history of trauma behind them. But as programs and as organizations and strategies and policymakers and academics, we are not asking those questions of men. Now, I don't understand why that is. Is it because we fundamentally don't care about them? Is it because we have a difficulty expressing empathy towards men, which is very common in society? Um, is it that if we did that, we would actually be effective at helping them and it would dent the uh, kind of financial prospects of programs that seek to work with perpetrators? I don't know. I'm just saying it's amazing to me that we're not asking the same questions and affording men the same richness of sympathy and empathy and, and inquiry that we do of women. Um, because with women, we, we're kind of seeking every explanation that we can for why they are being violent. We, we seek to try and excuse it as much as possible. Um, whereas with men, we're highly focused on just demonizing them, sitting them down, telling them that they're just horrible people and that they want control over women. A lot of this violence is rooted in emotional dysregulation, attachment-based trauma and traumatic life course events. And we don't sit down with men and try to understand how that has affected them and how we can help them. And we should be doing that if we truly want to help female victims, but also all victims and survivors. And we need to be doing that from both angles. We need to be sitting down with male and female and all the kind of intersectional variations of those two groups and sitting down with them and saying, OK, how can we help you as a victim? But we need to be doing the same with survivors. And there are no... As far as I'm aware, there are no uh, kind of uh, widely known, uh, accredited uh, or government funded female perpetrator programs in this country, which is insane when you consider that a lot of the research suggests parity of violence and when the research suggests that half of relationships involve abuse by both parties. If you're worried about a friend or a family member, here's some tips from Mark Brooks. Well, firstly, you need to believe them. And you need to take them seriously. We talk about five second test that if you show uh, with respect to a male victim, uh, any flicker of disbelief or try and downplay it, then the male victim will just clam up and won't disclose either to you again or may not disclose to anyone else. Secondly, um, you need to then reassure them that not only they are a victim, but also that you're on their side and that you can work together with them to actually find a solution to help them escape from the situation that they're in. That can include going to the police with them. Uh, that can go include going to other organisations and also helping them to find helplines um, and also local services. So believe them and then help them with practical support. In terms of if you're concerned, one of the things we recommend is looking at domestic abuse websites, including those for men, just to get some good background information. Um, we recommend that because that's a really good starting point of actually trying to understand what what is happening to someone you're concerned about. The, se the second point is about just start dropping into the conversations or reaching out to them and really do try and reach out to them. If, if you haven't heard from a brother or son 
or a mate for a year and they're in a new relationship you know do, do don't just shrug your shoulders and say oh he's got a new girlfriend or boyfriend and you know they're in love they don't want to talk to me or us anymore they're doing their own thing um you know make sure you're keeping in contact but also i think the key thing is is that when you are in contact just drop into the conversations is everything all right everything all right at home any particular issues that you're worried about etc and they may well say no no everything's all right etc and then you just say well if you ever want to talk about anything just let me know give me a call etc and then leave it and they may not disclose to you and say anything for months but what you're doing is that you're moving you're opening the door ajar that basically reassures them that actually you will listen to them and take them seriously if they want to open that door more widely and that's the key thing is that it's just about moving the door ajar bit by bit james has thankfully managed to move on from his abusive relationship he's now happily married and surrounded by people who love and value him i've been very lucky um you know, amazing family, amazing friends, an incredible partner. So, a very supportive workplace that, that I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to all of those people for bearing with me um, and helping me rebuild. Um, but it, I think, again, that's the message that I would want to get across that it can be done. It does take time, and it separation is not some easy fix because as a very wise counsellor that was working with the children early doors said to me um, at the close of one of their rounds of, 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 of counselling, she said, she said, somebody who has had control will not go quietly. They will not relinquish that control quietly. Um, and you are unlikely to have heard the last of your abuser. Um, and, and sadly that, has been the case and I have you know there's been further police involvement and some very very challenging behaviours to deal with but uh, you know as you rebuild and as you create a a fresh life for yourself that gets easier to deal with Um, and the support networks have got better you know that same agency that didn't have support available to men a few years ago now does and have provided me with some incredible uh, support and the the, 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 the the assistance of a support worker um, referrals through to, to, to mental health chari- uh, providers who are able to, to offer kind of bespoke counselling so that support is out there it can just I think my message to people would be persevere um, it, it it isn't you know there at the click of your fingers but it is there um but it's a long journey and um, the best thing is to surround yourself with as much support as you can and draw on that and don't be afraid to ask for that help because that's the message I had consistently from friends. You need to just ask. You need to stop being afraid to ask for help. This is a sentiment also echoed by Mark Brooks. There's um, lots of websites. There's national helplines. There's local services that you can reach out to to actually get that help um, directly from them in your local community. And helplines like ours 
uh, often provide a listening service where men just want to recognize and um, get things off their chest and understand that they are a victim and then we would signpost them onto local services so go to the police if you're in danger important to have a diary uh, log incidents uh, collect evidence confide in trusted friends and family and get information uh, that's online contact your local domestic abuse service there is support out there and my overriding message is that there are thousands of men going through domestic abuse right now there's also thousands of men who are starting the journey onto being in an abusive relationship but there's also thousands of men all of the time who are leaving successfully abusive relationships you've been listening to the problem with men podcast i want to say a huge thank you to james for bravely sharing his story with us and to mark and ben for sharing their expertise on the subject if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave a rating or a review on your podcast player it really does help us to get to a wider audience and if you'd like more information on domestic abuse we've put together some resources on our website theproblemwithmen.co.uk Until next time, goodbye. The Problem With Men podcast is an Octopus Industries production. Produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Kabasinguzi.